So this is Nehemiah chapter 9. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebdaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Okay, now this is where we start the story. You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the, of the wonders you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, 
and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they may do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted with wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave to them and in the large and rich land that you set before him, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. It's the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word, and we're thankful that you choose to speak to us through it. Lord, we trust that in a passage that uh, is old and feels far away with names that feel foreign to us, Jesus, we trust that you, through your Holy Spirit, are capable of speaking words that bring us life and direct us to you. Not just that you're capable of it, Lord, but we trust that you delight to do that. And so we trust you to do that for us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So story is a huge part of who we are, uh, as, even as people, right? It's true about us as Christians, but it's, it's true about us as people. And so we're going to talk about what this passage teaches us about being a people of story. And then we're going to look at the themes of this story that we see in this passage, look at those themes, and then talk about how we are called to respond to those themes. So story, the themes of the story, how we're called to respond. If you're a note taker, boom, those are the three points, okay? So this idea of story is really central to who we are as people. Do you know, fun fact, okay, 43% of the Bible is narrative. That's a lot of the Bible, right? 
33% of the Bible is poetry. And only 24% of the Bible is what uh, literature people would call didactic. So when we think of Paul's letters that are very like teaching-oriented, that tell us these are the things that are true, do these things, don't do these things, right? That's 24% of Scripture. The majority of what we have in our Bible is narrative. And that's intentional on God's part. Because what God knows about us is that we are a people who crave stories. He created us for stories. And in fact, as people, we can't function without them. We're always making meaning of the world around us. We're always looking for cause and effect relationships. Stories are the way that we structure our lives. And I don't know if you know this, there there are people in the world, philosophies in the world that would say uh, there is no such thing as cause and effect in our universe. They'd say the world started by chance, it was random, and that same chance governs all of our interactions and lives as people. So there's no such thing as cause and effect. There's no such thing as story is what they would say. Maybe, Maybe you're here, maybe you believe that. One of the ways that we know that people believe that is they they write those things down in books, right? And they write them in books because they want us to read them. And they want us to read them because they want us to convince us of something. What, What they're betraying by their very action of putting those thoughts to paper and selling them to us is that they believe in cause and effect. They believe in story. There is no way for us as people to make sense of our world without story. And God knows that about us. And so he chooses to teach us through story. There are stories that we tell about ourselves. One of the things I love about Dave is what a great storyteller he is. And I can tell you some of his stories because I've I've, I've heard them and and they stick in my mind and they help me know who Dave is, right? Like the pig farm, of course. We all know that one. It's great. The stories that we tell about ourselves matter. The stories that we tell about our past and where we come from, they matter. The stories that we tell over and over again, those stories shape our identity. Those stories stories are our identity. And what God is doing for his people in this passage is he's reminding them of their identity by telling them the story of their people. God is reminding them who they are as his people by telling them the story of who they are as his people. When we tell stories so often, who is the main character of our stories? I can't hear you behind the mask. You must be, you gotta be a little bit louder. Who is the main character of our stories? Us, right? I am the main character of my story. Uh, There is this TikTok video that I watched. I don't know if you know what TikTok is. It is a social media platform. I'm not on it, but I heard about a trending hashtag and found this video that kind of started this this, uh, trend, or that's how that works, right? A trend. Uh, That's hashtag main character. Okay? And this was the, the kind of video that started this hashtag, main character hashtag. This is, there's this woman laying on a, t- uh, on a towel on a beach, and there's a drone flying over, zooming in on her. And this, there's like music playing behind and like little sparkles that show up on the screen. And these are the words that the narrator is saying. I'll tr- do my best to imitate the breathy voice of it. Okay? You have to start romanticizing your life. You have to start thinking of yourself as the main character. 
Because if you don't, life will continue to pass you by. All the little things that make life beautiful will continue to go unnoticed. And then it's TikTok, so I'll bloops, so I'll just read it to you again, okay? You have to start romanticizing your life. You have to start thinking of yourself as the main character because if you don't, life will continue to pass you by. All the little things that make life beautiful will continue to go unnoticed. And there is a whole school of, of therapy and of, of blogs of therapists who are all about helping you harness your main character energy to live your life. So if you leave here and you think this is a good way to live, you can go look it up. And there are plenty of people who will tell you, this is how you harness your main character energy. And as much as we laugh at that, right? That, that that's true about the way that we think about ourselves. That not only that we're the main character, but that we're the author of our stories. That we're the cast and the crew and the producer and the writer and the main character. What are, what, the world that we have been raised in has always told us, hey, y- you are the main character. And so what you need to do is reach deep inside yourself and figure out who you are. That the best thing you can do to find fulfillment is to come in contact with your authentic self. To take your destiny kind of by the horns and steer it where you will, right? That you have the power to become you. But does anybody else ever feel like that's a prison? Do any of you ever feel like that's a prison? Yeah. Yeah. Right? That what is so often true is that when I look inside myself, uh, what I find is that it's really hard to know who I am. That it looks like, it's like, it's like looking through frosted glass. I can't even, I can't even see clearly who I am. And the more I look, the more out of focus it often becomes. The more I try to figure out what my authentic self is, I find that what I thought the authentic self was continues to change and shift. And then also when I look inside myself, often what I find is things I don't want to see. Does that ever happen to you? And maybe, maybe the way that you live as a main character isn't the kind of take life by its horns. Maybe the way you live as a main character is that you're always the victim of life. That life is always happening to you. That everybody is always out uh, to get you. That the narrative that you tell, whether it's at work or in your family, is all the things that everybody else is doing to frustrate your own goals. That's just another way of living as the main character. Only you've cast yourself in a tragedy rather than in a romantic comedy, which is what most of us cast ourselves in. (laughs) And both of those stories are hopelessly self-focused. And what's also true about those stories, right, those prisons, is that they are 100% not biblical. And that's what our text shows us this morning. Is who's the main character of the text that we read? Oh, guys, we can do better than that. Who's the main character of the text that we just read? God, very obviously, right? How many times do you think this text says the word you in reference to God? A lot of times. Any, any guesses on how many times? 25. 30, 50. Okay, do you, actually, I have no idea how many times. I'll just tell you, it's a lot of times, right? The whole story is about God. 
And what a gift that is because it pulls us out of our own prisons, right? This being stuck in our own narratives and it invites us into something that is so much bigger than ourselves. And what we find as we step into this story that's bigger than ourselves is that it doesn't obliterate us as individuals, but it frees us from our autonomy. And it allows us to become who God created us to be, which are people in his story. Okay, so that's the importance of story that we see God using here, that he's using the story to shape his people, to remind them, this is who you are. You're a part of my story. We see it in verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people. What the people are doing here, they're identifying themselves as part of this larger story of God. We've got to ask ourselves, what are the themes then of this story? And the first theme, the clearest theme of this story is God's faithfulness. The clearest theme of this story is God's faithfulness. You can look at verse 8. Right At the end, well, the, the first thing that happens in the story is God creates the world. He made everything and he preserves everything. And then... Uh, the story talks about God's interaction with Abram, which is this man that God came to and God made a covenant with. And this is what it says about God's covenant with Abraham. It says, you have kept your promise for you are righteous. That right there, right, in one of the beginning, the foundational acts of God's interaction with man, God proves himself righteous, that he keeps his promise. He's faithful. And then... At the end of the narrative, in verse 31, right after it kind of walks through all of the story, it says, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So from the beginning of this story to the end of the story, it's bookmarked, it's bookmarked with God's faithfulness. And all throughout the story, in all of the verbs and the words that are used to describe God, that is what comes out most clearly says, you gave them kingdoms and peoples. Here, actually, I'm going to start back a little bit earlier in the, in the narrative. It says that in Egypt, God saw the affliction of their fathers. God divided the sea before them. God led them in, in the day and in the night. God came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them. God gave them rules that were good for them. God made known his law by his servant Moses. He gave them bread. He gave them water. Then later, he gave them kingdoms and peoples. He multiplied their children, and he brought them into a land that he had promised their fathers that he would do. So all throughout this narrative, we could go on and on and on. It shouts the faithfulness of God. These people, these exiles, right? They're people who have been uprooted from their land, taken far away, scattered across the ancient Near East, and God has brought them back. And what God wants them to hear most clearly is, I am faithful. Even when you were being scattered, I was faithful. Even when your parents were in exile, I was faithful. And even now, as I'm bringing you back in the land, I'm faithful. Do you know that if you were in Christ, that is the main theme of your story, whether or not you acknowledge it, that God's faithfulness is the main theme of your story because this story is your story. This God is your God. 
We've been adopted into the family of Abraham. This story is our story, and your God is faithful to you. And one of the gifts of knowing that we're a part of a story that's larger than ourselves is it allows us to trust that God is faithful even when it's hard to see in our own lives. Because often what you and I are doing is we're looking right at the circumstances in front of us. And we're saying, if God were faithful to me, he would do X, right? That we chart out for God what we believe his faithful action toward us would be. And sometimes we know, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we think we know, and then we find out years later that we didn't know. And so what's so important about being part of a story that's larger than us is it allows us to root our confidence in God's faithfulness, not in our ability to see everything clearly and know all of the minute ways that he's working, but it allows us to trust his faithful action over the course of time and to know that he's faithful to us. He's faithful to you no matter what you're experiencing right now, even in what you're experiencing right now. Do you know, even in your own life, the places that God has been faithful in the past? If you're in Christ, it's true, he has been. When you think about your story, when someone asks you, what is your story? Do you share with them the faithfulness of God to you? Are you aware of those stories? One of the things uh, I I loved about my grandma is how often she talked about God's faithfulness in her own life to me. And she told me the same stories over and over again. And I would think, Grandma, I've heard this before. And then as I got older and as she got older, I thought, you know what, Lord, maybe this is a good thing because when she's gone, I will know how you were faithful to her. Uh, and that'll help me trust that you're, you're being faithful to me. And that's been true. One of the greatest gifts we can give to each other, to the people around us, is to know God's faithfulness in our own stories and to share those stories with each other. Because what's true about this story is that while the major theme is God's faithfulness, one of the sub-themes of this story, right, or the counter-melody, if you're a music person, there's the melody and the counter-melody. The counter-melody in this passage is the unfaithfulness of Israel, the unfaithfulness of God's people. We see that in verses 16 and 17 in this passage. But after God had delivered his people from Egypt. It says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders you performed among them, but stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. What? That's hard for us to believe, right? That sounds ridiculous, that God would deliver his people from slavery and the first thing they would want to do is go back to their slavery? That's what we do so often, though, isn't it? How many times have you said, well, I will never do that again. I will never yell like that again. I will never speak like that again. I will never, I will never, I will never. And yet so often we find ourselves right back in those same places. We've returned to our own slavery. We may not worship a golden calf like the Israelites did, right, on the plains of Moab, but we worship plenty of other things that are not God whether it's money or sex or power, whether it's image, whether it's family, we take good things and we make them ultimate things and those things ultimately misshape us. And that's also a part of our stories, our our unfaithfulness to God. And all throughout the Old Testament, we find this tension 
of God's continued faithfulness over and over and over and over again, and yet the people continue to be unfaithful. And so at the end of the Old Testament, we wonder, we're crying out, God, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to resolve this tension? And friends, how does, how does God resolve it? This is real, it's a really easy answer, right? It's, it's church, so it's obviously, what's the answer? Yes, in Jesus, right? That Jesus is the way that God resolves this tension that seems unresolvable. That in the person, in the work, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of man, uh, are, are the tension between those two things is resolved. And then what we learn is that, that Christ took all, the weight of God's wrath for all of our sin, for all the sin of his people, and he poured that out on Christ. And because of that, he has no punishment left for us. That there is no punishment for our sin. And you know that when Christ went to the cross, all of your, all of your sins were future sins, right? You had not yet committed any of them. And he knew Yet he knew all of them. He went to the cross for all of them. And that explains why God is able to deal so generously with his people, even in the Old Testament. Because for his people, God had passed over their sins for the sake of what he knew Christ was going to do. That in Jesus Christ, this counter melody of our sin, our unfaithfulness to God's faithfulness, is actually now woven into the melody of God. And it does what counter melody does in all music is that it amplifies, it makes more beautiful the main melody. In any novel, any good sub-theme makes the theme of the novel more obvious. And that's true about what Christ has done for us. And this is so key then in understanding what it means for us to live as part of the Christian story for the Christian story to now be our story, for Christ's story to be our story. Because the way that we so often conceptualize the Christian life, right, is as kind of like a, a chart of holiness over time. I guess it would be like this from where you're sitting, okay? That over time our goal is, well, I just want the trend line of that graph to be positive. And so we tell ourselves these story, like maybe if you grew up in the church, it's like, well, you know, I, kind of, I became a Christian and things were going well, and then, well, then I, you know, I started listening to that secular music, and oh, it's not so good, right? And then, well, then I went to camp, and then I came home and I threw away all of my bad CDs, and I got even holier, but then I came, and it's this like up and down and up and down and up. Did anybody else ever do that? I certainly did. Okay. And so our goal of the Christian life is as long as I can just make that trend line positive, I'll, I'll be doing what God wants me to do. Friends, that is not the Christian life. That kind of Christian living has no room for the realities of this passage because that story is all about our own effort and our own righteousness. But what we find here is that we are unfaithful. Where's that in the story? And if all we're bent on seeing in our Christian lives is our increasing holiness, we're going to become insufferable to the people around us. It's just another way of being the main character. But there's a different way to step into the story of the gospel. Can I get this chart behind me? Yes, okay, great. Have you guys seen this before? Yes, I'm glad. If you haven't seen it, this chart changed my life because it helped me understand the gospel in a different way. And if you have seen it, you need to be reminded of it. And what it tells us is that right there at conversion, that repentance is the doorway into the Christian life. 
That turning to Christ means saying, Lord, there is sin in me that I cannot undo myself, that I'm unfaithful, but you are faithful, and so I'm trusting what you have provided for me. That that's the doorway into the Christian life. But we don't live, leave repentance there. That we actually grow in repentance over the course of our Christian life because what happens the longer you walk with Jesus is that you recognize that you are more sinful than you ever knew. Has anybody else ever had that experience? That doesn't, that doesn't mean something is wrong. That means that the Holy Spirit is working in you. That he's showing you that there are parts of your life that Jesus wants to deal with. And then what we find is we have those parts of our hearts exposed is that we grow in the knowledge of God's holiness. And that's not just the righteousness of God, although it includes that. The holiness of God also includes his love and his mercy and his grace for you, even as someone who is unfaithful. So as we grow in a knowledge of our own sinfulness, what we see is that Christ meets us there and the cross is what becomes bigger and bigger in our lives. So repentance isn't the doorway into the, just the doorway into the Christian life. It's also the way we continue in the Christian life. And that when we repent, when, we, when I talk about repentance, what I'm talking about is that we would name our sin before God. That we would say, God, this is a, these, are, these are the sins that I see in my life right now. That when we do that, when we confess our sins, like this text says the people of Israel were doing, we don't get fresh forgiveness, but we get woken up to the reality of all that our God has already done for us. It allows us to step into this story that is so much bigger than us, where God is the main character. And it allows us to find uh, who we truly are. And to close, I just want to read uh, this quote for us about the freedom that we that we find as we submit our stories to a story that's bigger than ourselves. This is by a guy, James K.A. Smith. He's talking about Augustine, but really he's talking about us. And he says, the very notion will scandalize us. We've been encouraged to live our truth to come up with our own story, for whom authenticity is the burden of writing our own de novo script. The notion of a governing narrative that is not your own feels like signing over the rights to your life, which it is. But being enfolded in God's story is not an imposition, but a liberation. When you've realized that you don't even know yourself, that you're an enigma to yourself, and when you keep looking inward only to find an unplumbable depth of mystery and secrets and parts of yourself that are loathsome, then scripture isn't received as a list of commands. Instead, it breaks into your life as a light from the outside and shows you the infinite God who loves you at the bottom of the abyss. Scripture erupts into our life as revelation, the story about God told by another and as illumination, shining a light that helps us finally understand our hungers and faults and hopes. Let me pray for us. Father, we uh, are thankful that you are a God who has created us for story. And Lord, we're thankful that in the story that you have written, Lord, that our unfaithfulness only serves to highlight even more your faithfulness to us. Lord, would you make us a people, uh, not a people who hide from our sin, Lord, but who are willing to see it, who are willing to call it out, confess it to you and confess it to each other. And in that, Lord, that your faithfulness would be made even larger in our lives. And as we engage in worship, Lord, would you bless us with that reality this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.